This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you have a Bible or an app on your phone with the Bible. If you don't, uh, in front of you, uh, in your chair, uh, the basket under the chair in front of you is a Bible. So take that out and you can open up to page 455 because we're just going to teach through a few verses today. So you'll be able to track along. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, this is just our gift to you. So you can just take that Bible home with you and uh, then you'll have one. So we'd love to, uh, to love to give you one. Um, Welcome if you're new, uh, new year, sometimes people uh, come to church, sometimes that might even be a resolution for somebody. So if you are new, it is good to have you. My name is Craig and I'm one of the pastors here and you're kind of walking into the middle of a, a teaching series. We're going through this whole book of First Corinthians, and, uh, but we've taken a break for Christmas. So we're just getting back into it today. And if, if you've never heard of the book, I think you'll be able to track uh, what we're talking about today. So let me pray and then we'll jump into this passage. Lord, we thank you today for your marvelous grace to us. Thank you for bringing us to this place. Uh, Thank you for giving your life for us, which we just remembered afresh in communion. Uh, Thank you for the truth of your scripture. Thank you that you speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your Bible. So we ask you to open our ears. We ask you to speak to our lives and our hearts. I pray that what is communicated today would be relevant, would touch us where we are living today. So speak to us, give us a will to respond to you as well. So I pray that we would be hearers and doers of your word. Most of all, show us Jesus Christ today through your word, Lord. We wanna see uh, his glory, his beauty, his power. And I pray that you would really just speak to us today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was thinking about what is the golden rule of our culture? If American culture had a golden rule, what would it be? Uh, I don't think it would be what we often think of as the golden rule, which is in the Bible, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think the golden rule or the primary rule of our culture would be this, don't judge. Don't judge. Don't judge me. That is the highest and holiest of all American values in our current culture, I believe. Don't judge, don't judge me. And none of us want to be thought of as that judgmental person. None of us want to be, have anyone think of us as Judgy McJudgerson, the worst of all worst, the person who judges other people. And Jesus, after all, did say in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you will be judged. That's the words of Jesus. Do not judge or you will be judged. One author said, this has become the best known, most often quoted verse in American culture. It has eclipsed John three sixteen as the best known verse of the Bible. Jesus said, don't judge. And ironically, the church, we, the church in America, we, uh, we don't have the best track record on honoring Jesus's commandment uh, not to judge. We certainly have a track record of failing in that area in many ways. Don't judge. It, it sounds great. It's the words of Jesus. It should sound great, but it is very difficult. 
It's very difficult, no matter how hard any of us try. If you make a New Year's resolution, I'm not going to judge people this year. It is so hard because we just slip into judgment. One of the fastest ways, I'm not going to judge anybody, but we quickly judge people that we see as judgmental. And that is the irony of the whole thing is that we can say, well, I don't want to judge, but yeah, who are you to judge me? Kind of a thing. It's just very, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to live out this do not judge. This, this difficulty of not judging others, it stands out in a quote I read by modern day philosopher and wordsmith, Charlie Sheen. And uh, Charlie Sheen, who is known for saying amazing things, and I only point this out, I, my goal is not to uh, mock Charlie Sheen, that kind of go against what I'm talking about today, but uh, just to point out in his own statement, uh, just the, uh, the incredible irony of telling people not to judge and then do it ourselves. He says this, you have the right to kill me, but you don't have the right to judge me, which is pretty interesting in itself. I mean, shoot me, just don't call me stupid, okay? Anything, whatever. So he says, you have the right to kill me, but you don't have the right to judge me. And then he goes on to say, so just shut your traps and put down your McDonald's, your vaccines, your Us Weekly, your TMZ, and the rest of it. So what he's saying is don't judge me. But if you do, you're like one of those people is like some ignorant fast food eating person. I mean, that's just like you're on the bottom of the food chain. You eat at McDonald's. You're ignorant. You vaccinate your kids. You read gossip rags like Us Weekly and you feast on the tawdry gossip tales of TMZ finding out the dirt on everybody. So don't judge me because that's who you are. Kind of defeats the defeats the purpose of saying, don't judge me, then by leveling multiple judgments against those who are judging you. Well, we can all relate to that temptation. In today's passage, Paul addresses the people in the church at Corinth that he's writing to, and they are judging him. The first four chapters of the letter are all about the divisiveness that is going on in the church. They are a divided people. They are in factions and their separation, their factions all sort of revolve around this reality that they are Put, you know, putting themselves forward. They are judging one another, but the way they're doing it is they're identifying with leaders. So somebody says, I'm of Paul. And somebody else says, I'm of Apollos. And somebody else says, I am of Peter. And these were leaders in the church Bible in, that are all in the Bible. And so they're, they're dividing from others. They're judging one another, but rather than just coming out and saying, you're ignorant, they're saying, I am like Peter. And you're not, so you're ignorant, you know, by implication. So they are judging one another. Their pride and their selfishness has really come out as they promote these leaders. And so now Paul responds to them. He responds to their judgment because they're judging him. And he responds to them by defining what kind of a leader he is, what his identity is as a leader, and then addressing judgment specifically. So let's listen to the passage, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, page 555 in the Bible under the chair. This is God's word. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, 
Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul starts with talking about his identity as a leader, and then he addresses the subject of judgment. And if we could summarize what he's saying here, I think what it is, is he's applying not only to himself, but to all of us as Christians. He's saying the Christian life is about serving Jesus, who alone judges our faithfulness because he has all the data. He knows all and can judge. So the Christian life is about serving Jesus, who alone can judge our faithfulness because he has all the data. So the first thing he talks about here is that our identity, his identity, and by implication, ours as well as Christian, our identity is a servant. That's how we are to think of ourselves. That's what he says. Verse one, but you should regard us as servants of Christ. So he begins this section by adjusting the Corinthians' view of leadership, their view of him. And he's, he's saying, just think of me, regard me as a servant. They, they have a cultural view of leadership that crops up at different points in this letter, where we see that what they're enamored with is leaders who are sort of silver-tongued, people who uh, are wisdom gurus, who just sort of can wow people with their philosophy. They bring a philosophical speech that just sort of amazes. Again, they have a history in Greek culture, which cherished philosophy, uh, where philosophy comes from. And so they are, they are enamored with that kind of thing. They want impressive leaders who can speak uh, philosophical wisdom. And they say, Paul doesn't really speak that way. They also want leaders who are honored and elevated and lifted up. And so to that, Paul says, look, here's how I want you to think about me. Not like any of those things. I'm here to serve. I am a servant of Christ. That's how you should regard me. And this word servant, it describes someone in the Greco-Roman world who was a slave, who was, uh, who was a servant of a master. Now, the slavery there was different in many ways than the slavery. There's certainly some similarities, but different than the slavery, uh, the, the atrocious slavery in our own country. Um, there were many slaves that earned money. There were many slaves that could buy their freedom. There were many slaves that had significant responsibility. Uh, but were still called slaves or servants. And this word in particular, servant, it, it describes someone who did menial tasks. So Paul is saying, here's how I want you to think of me. I want you to think of me as someone who will do menial tasks for Jesus. I love him. I follow him. I serve him. Whatever it takes to please him, whatever it takes to honor Christ, that's who I am. That's what I do. That's how I want you to think of me. Now, this is the guy who founded the church, the guy who's writing the Bible, this section of the Bible, uh, you know, this significant leader, uh, this, you know, arguably greatest Christian to ever live, perhaps. And he's saying, just think of me as someone who's assigned to do menial tasks, Regard me as someone who is at Christ's disposal, whatever Jesus wants me to do. He also says, think of me as a steward. Now, a steward was also a servant in this culture, but the steward had much more responsibilities. A steward in a household could actually have significant um, uh, jobs. A a, a steward managed oftentimes the household's finances, uh, may have managed the farming 
if they had a farm and it may have managed those who worked uh, in, in planting and harvesting the crops, uh, may have handled the billing, where if they were, the household had a business, handled the billing, handled the accounting, worked with the, fa- the budget, may have even had responsibilities with the family. So fairly intimate, not just managing the, uh, you know, the crops and that sort of thing, but perhaps also doing things that the children needed in the household or something like that. So it was a manager with significant responsibilities, not the servant who did menial tasks, but still a servant. And they were responsible to manage what belonged to the owner. And in this, in this case, Paul says, I manage, I administrate, I steward the mysteries of God. What does that mean? Well, he's primarily talking about the mysteries of God is something that the truth that was a mystery, the Bible tells us, but has now been revealed. It's the message of what Christ came to do. It was not known to people in the old covenant, but now it has been revealed that Jesus died for sinners, that he was buried, that he was raised to life on the third day, and anyone who believes in Jesus has their sins forgiven and receives new life. This is the message of the whole Bible. This is called the gospel, which means good news. This is the good news. And Paul is saying, that message is entrusted to me as a steward, and I am to manage, I am to administrate, I am to live, I'm to believe that message, I'm to communicate that message, and I'm to live in light of that good news, that message. So he's a servant, willing to do anything, and he is entrusted with the, the good news of what Jesus did. And that shapes his life, and it shapes his words. So Paul's saying, look, I'm an apostle, I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor, I'm a church planner, I'm a leader in this church, I founded this church. He's saying all that to them, but I want you to just think of me not in those ways. I want you to regard me as a servant, happy to do any task for my Lord, as an administrator, um, steward, entrusted with the message of the gospel. In other words, he's saying leadership is not about me. It's not about my success. Don't think of me as some successful leader. It's, think of me as one who is who's serving Christ. I'm not building a platform for myself. I'm not enamored with my influence. Paul's saying, I'm not just running around saying, how many people are following me? How many followers do I have in social media? How many likes did I get when I posted the picture on Instagram of our Bible study together? And did people like that? And do they respect me? And are they following me. He's not worried about his accomplishments or his legacy. He's concerned with Jesus Christ. And he's saying, I'm serving him. That's just think of me that way, serving him. Now, what is he doing in telling all this? Why would Paul be telling them how they should view him? Why is he talking about what a leader is? Well, here's the reason because he is modeling something for them. What if everyone in the church, instead of judging Paul did the same thing? What if everyone in the church here was saying, we're just servants of Christ. We don't think of ourselves in lofty terms. We're about him. We want to please him. We want to honor him. Our concern is Christ. And and we want to be good stewards of his message. We want our lives to reflect the gospel. We want to live like Jesus really died for us and it makes a difference. What if everyone in the church was living like that? Well, we wouldn't have most of the first four chapters and many large sections of this whole book. He's modeling for them, this is how we're to live the Christian life. The division is because people are posturing themselves for recognition, not posturing themselves for God's glory. They're seeking to be better than others rather than serve others. 
They're seeking to criticize others and advance themselves rather than love, serve, and honor others. That they're living for themselves. They're not promoting Jesus. They're promoting themselves. They're not living humbly in light of what Christ has done on the cross. And so rather than having a sweet unity, they have a bitter divisiveness as a church. That is the vibe of this church. The aroma is antagonism, division, people opposed to one another. And so Paul's saying, this is how I live. Think of me this way. Hint, hint. If you all live the same way and said, think of me this way, it would be very different in the church. We are to live our lives as servants of Christ and others, carrying his message all around us and living in light of his message. So his calling and our calling is servant. Our duty is faithfulness. Duty is faithfulness. That's what he says, verse two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That's the measure of success is to be faithful. Here's the thing about all stewards. One steward may have just, you know, may have just overseen the kitchen of the household. Another steward may have overseen a large business enterprise for a master. But one thing they all had in common is they were managing something that belonged to someone else. It wasn't theirs. And so he is saying, we're called to be faithful in caring for someone else's household, someone else's resources, someone else's affairs. A faithful steward took their role so seriously that the interests of their owner was their own interest. And so that's what Paul's saying. What concerns Jesus is what concerns me. What pleases him is what pleases me. What honors him is what I want to be about. That's what he's saying. Faithfulness is the mark of stewardship. I just completed a um, memoir by Phil Knight. Phil Knight is the founder of Nike. And in the memoir, he's 78. And I think he just stepped down from being the CEO or whatever. I don't know if he's on the board or whatever now, but anyway, he talks about his whole career. And the fascinating thing about the book is it's primarily two things. The early parts of the book are primarily two things, a lot about his own life, but then a lot about the quirky employee, the first employees in Nike. They were, they were, they were bizarre. He describes them as such. They all had super quirky personalities and had things about them that made them all really odd. And he goes into great detail describing that as well as his own oddities. So that's interesting when he does that. And the second thing about the book is it just talks about one potential um, destructive uh, act after another. So the company almost blows up, but they make it. And they almost go under, but they make it. And they almost aren't going to exist, but they do. So it's just, it's interesting because it's compelling. Oh, it's going to be over, but we know it's not over. We're wearing Nike. So anyway, um, most of it happens in the 60s and 70s. So one of the quirky employees he has, the first guy he ever hired is a guy named Johnson. And the thing that's so fascinating about him in the book is Johnson is a shoe dog. That's the name of the book. Someone who's really into shoes. He's a shoe dog and he lives for this company. Nike's not even in existence. They're just importing tiger shoes uh, from Japan. And so one of the points at which they almost die is they're, they're, they're distributing these shoes. They have very few employees, but he's got Johnson, first employee, best employee ever. And uh, he's in the boardroom in Japan. Phil Knight is by himself in the boardroom. And they say, hey, it's over. We're not going to ship with you anymore. We're looking for a national distributor. You're in Portland. You're on the West Coast. We want the whole country wearing tiger shoes. We're looking for another distributor. At which point Phil Knight lies and says, oh, we're, we're national. We have distribution all over the country. They said, oh, we didn't know that. There's no internet. You can't verify it. They say, he says, yeah, we're on the East Coast. And they say, well, where? And he says, well, let me get back with you on a shipping address. He has no East 
Coast operation. But he says this because Johnson will do whatever he says for the company. So he comes home and says, Johnson, I know you love Southern California. I know you're, I need you yesterday on the East Coast somewhere creating a, a factory, an office, something. We got to have, we got shoes coming. And I told them we had, so you got to go find it and figure it out. And Johnson is so loyal. He, Knight says that he cares more about the shoes than the founder Knight does. And he's willing to uproot instantly and do whatever it takes to go to another place, place he doesn't want to be for the company. He's a company man. He had the ultimate faithfulness because the interests of the owner were actually equal. And at some points it appears more important to him than they were the owner. Now, obviously, Phil Knight and Johnson, Jesus and Paul, it breaks down at some point. Jesus isn't lying to Japanese factories. It breaks down at some point. But the, but the, but the, the heart of it is true, that a steward is faithful. It's someone who carries the heart of the owner. It is someone who is eminently consumed with the interest of another. And that's what Paul says, every steward is required, verse two, to be faithful. We're all to be company men and company women, and Jesus is the company. We're not doing our own thing, we're, we're about his interest is what he says. And so his, his standard is faithfulness. That is the metric for measuring success in the kingdom of God. As a Christian, that is the standard. But the Corinthians had all other kinds of standards. Is the guy articulate? Uh, is, he, uh, is he engaging personality-wise? Uh, is he wealthy or rich? Paul wouldn't even take money from them, and they didn't like that because they wanted rich wisdom gurus, and they're willing to pay for it. So is he impressive? What is the metric for success? So our metric may be different, but we have cultural metrics as well that's so easy to fall into. Our culture says you're, you're successful based on how you look. You're successful based on what your job is. You're successful based on your income. You're successful based on what you drive. You're successful based on what your house is like. You're successful based on how intelligent, how witty, how friendly, how engaging you are. You're successful based on what your address is. You know, Frisco is an environment that is viewed as a successful place to be. And you may not think of that if you just live here, but if you visit other parts of the Metroplex, some places are nicer than Frisco, many, most perhaps are not. And so if you engage with someone in the Metroplex who lives perhaps in an area that doesn't have the same reputation and you say, oh yeah, I live in Frisco or one of the surrounding communities, live in the Frisco area, uh, often the response is, oh wow, well, okay, you, you must be, okay, you've got a nice address. That's a, that's a great place to be. And we can even tie success to where we live, the city, the neighborhood, what it is. But the reality is your zip code has nothing to do with your success before the Lord. Zero. It does not matter at all. Faithfulness is what matters. We, we live in a very family-oriented environment. Uh, could even say child-centric environment. And I love my kids and I love my grandkids. So I love kids, all for them. But the reality is that sometimes if you're a parent in this culture, parents can judge their success based on the success of their kids. So what's successful? It's having successful kids. There are some cultures that really place a lot of pressure on the kids got to be a certain way. They got to do a certain thing to make 
the family look good, to make the parents look good. So the metric of parental success is kid success. And that's why soccer dad is on the sideline every Saturday having a car, almost going into cardiac arrest when, if his kid's going to score a goal. If, is, he, is he chasing butterflies and picking flowers at five years old? Or did he kick the ball? Because everything rides on this. And that's why PTA mom is all stressed out about how her kid's doing in school and all that kind of stuff. Play soccer, be in the PTA. I'm all for it. But if you, if that is your identity, how your child is doing, that's the culture we live in. And Paul says, no, that's not, it's, it's required of a steward to be successful in this, that they are found faithful. So Paul says, that's my goal. That's my calling. That's, that's what I have in front of me, faithful to Jesus. And that leads to the final point that our identity uh, our identity is uh, to be that of a servant. Um, our duty is faithfulness and our judge is Jesus. So this is how he gets to the judgment part. They're judging him, but he starts with what is my identity? How am I measured? And now he goes to who measures me? You're judging me, but who measures me? Our judge is Jesus. Many of the Corinthians are judging Paul because he's not as good as other leaders. They're interested in other leaders. He started the church uh, but they're moving on to some other people that their tastes and their preferences line up with these other people, not Paul, who's, from what Paul says, not as good of a speaker. He doesn't speak as well as some of the other guys do. And so they like some of these other fancy uh, teachers and that sort of thing. And so Paul says, look, it really doesn't matter to me how you judge me, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, this is not an, he's not being arrogant. We'll see as we walk through the passage at the end. He's not being arrogant. He's like, I don't care what you say. I answer to Jesus and nobody else drops the mic into the discussion. What can, what can you say to that? He's not doing that. He's not being arrogant. Like you can't judge me. He isn't saying, Hey, stop being so judgy. Jesus isn't judgy. He's not saying, I only answer to Jesus. All around me is a circle. This is a judgment-free zone. Don't you step into this zone. You can't judge me. He's not, this is not what he's doing, this kind of a thing. Judging is a, well, it's a bit of a complex issue to think it through biblically. It's a bit of a complex issue. Um, for instance, we quoted earlier, Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says this, do not judge or you will be judged Okay, we got that. Do not, national verse of America. Do not judge or you will be judged. Five verses later, in the same sermon, in the exact same context, he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ouch. He's talking about people. He's describing a certain kind of people. And so somebody's going to have to judge, what is he talking about? Hint, the pigs he's talking about are those who are judgmental of others, Pharisees, uh, self-righteous, I believe. But th this is what he says. So he's obviously saying, don't judge. But then he doesn't say, hey, let's all circle up for group hug. And he isn't filling up everybody's love cup. He's in, in a few verses later saying, there's some people that are acting metaphorically. I'm going to call them dogs and pigs. And you need to relate to them in a certain way. So which is it, Jesus? I mean, I thought we weren't judging. That's kind of hard to, how do we process that? Or think about Paul. He says, it does not matter. We just read it. It does not matter to me if you judge me. God judges me. Don't pronounce judgment before it's time. He says, then in the next chapter, we'll get to this chapter five. 
I mean, the Corinthians are, it is a reality TV show. The next chapter, what we're going to find out is there's a guy in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife and they're not doing anything about it. I mean, we're not supposed to judge, right? So how can be judgy? That's just, that's, if that's good for him. So he's sleeping with his mother-in-law and Paul comes to them and says, look, uh, this is unacceptable. What are you doing? At the end of the chapter, you're not loving the man. First of all, at the end of the chapter, verse five, chapter 12, he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? So Paul said, I'm not judging the world. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Okay. So he's saying, I don't care if you judge. I mean, it's only Jesus who judges me. Jesus says, do not judge. Now he's saying, judge the man in the church and he needs to be placed outside of the church. Now we'll see it's for love. It's redemptive. It's so that he will either come to his senses and repent and say, this is wrong. Or if he's not a Christian, he'll meet Christ. And by treating him like everything's okay, it's very unloving because it's communicating to him. Everything's okay with God when it's not, uh, the scripture forbids, uh, uh, obviously that kind of sexual immorality. So he said, somebody has got to make an assessment in this church and judge this guy's behavior or chapter six, chapter six, the Corinthians are suing each other. So it's like you walk out of church. Hey, see you next week. Oh no, I'll see you Wednesday. We, we have an appointment. Oh, that's right at court. I'll be suing your pants off at 10 AM. See you then. So this is the kind of church where it's like, okay, well, I'll meet you in court. There's these people are suing each other. So Paul says, can't you get someone to help you mediate your differences. And in chapter six, verse 12, the NIV says, is it uh, verse 12, is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? So Paul's saying, look, we need some judgment in the church. Quit going to the court. You're both believers, get a mature believer, get a mature person and have them sit down with you and hear your side and hear your side and then make a judgment. You're wrong. You're right. You're partially wrong. You're partially wrong. That's usually what it is. So let's compromise and do this. So he's saying there needs to be some judgment. So how do we put these things together? How do we sort this out? Throughout scripture, we are called to make assessments of what is right and wrong. We're called to be discerning. There is a right and wrong. And somebody has to call balls and strikes and make some judgments. That's entrusted to authority. Parents do that with their children. Civil government is called to do that with citizens. Elders do that in a local church. Um, Employers do that with their employees. So someone is called to make some righteous assessments. What the Bible opposes is not making an assessment of right or wrong, making a judgment, but being judgmental. That's what the Bible opposes is being self-righteously judgmental. The Bible opposes hypocritical judgment where I act like I'm better than someone else, or I would never, or I put myself in a position of righteousness, them in a position of unrighteousness and sort of separate myself as better than them. This is what the Bible is opposed to. So for instance, when Jesus says, do not judge, or you will be judged. And then I told you what he said five verses later, like two verses later, he says, before we get to the dogs and the pig statement, he says, why are you trying to remove a speck in your brother's eye while you have a log protruding from your own? 
So he's saying, you're judging your brother and saying, oh, let me help you. You got a problem, pal. You got a little speck in your eyeball. And he says, you've got a tree trunk coming out of your eyeball. So why are you with this log messing with this guy's speck? What Jesus is saying, why are you judging people? Look in the mirror, have a little self-assessment, have a little humility to deal with yourself before you're out randomly judging everybody else about their problems. He's saying, don't be a hypocrite. And Paul is saying something similar here. Paul is very humble in his assessment. He's saying, it doesn't matter to me if you judge me or not, because I really don't answer to you ultimately. Now, as a leader, he would answer to other Christians that he would be above reproach. The Bible teaches that an elder, for instance, has to be above reproach. So there is an evaluation objectively of a man's character. But he's saying these kind of preferences that you have, these stylistic desires, the way you say you like this guy and not me to promote yourself, that stuff doesn't matter to me. Those aren't qualifications for ministry. Those are personal preferences. So he says that that doesn't matter to me to me. Um, And he said, by the way, I don't even judge myself. Now, I don't know of anything in my conscience that's wrong with me. I'm not aware of something, but that doesn't make me innocent. I don't know everything. I don't even fully know everything about my own heart. So how, how can I be out judging someone else? It's a very humble approach is what he's saying. It's not hypocritical. It's not self-righteous. He's not saying I'm better than you. He's saying my conscience is clear from what I know, but that's not the final story because I'm not the final authority. That's humility. That's not judging someone else self-righteously. So here's what he does to close the section. He tells us two things that are helpful to think through about judging and about judgment. Look at verse five. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes. So he says, don't judge people prematurely. The Lord will sort that out when he comes. Don't judge. Here's what he's saying. Don't judge with limited data. You have limited data data. You don't know everything. You don't know how everything's going to turn out in the end. So don't make a premature judgment. In other words, don't write people off. That's what we do. I can look at someone. I can think of them as a certain way. I can put them in a box and I can just write them off. Is that who they are? That's who they've been. That's who they'll always be. That's an unrighteous judgment. That makes no room for the grace of God. That makes no room for what the Lord might do in their life. That makes no room for maybe I don't know everything about them. Paul says, I don't know everything about myself. I can't even judge myself. How can I be out making a final assessment of this person? I must wait. Don't be premature. So so we can write people off. We have no hope for them. We look at them like they are and think they won't change. And so we don't understand the potential of the grace of God in their life. Without a vision of grace in them, we make final judgments about people. Is that your final answer? That's how we judge. That we have a final uh, assessment of someone. And rather than trusting God in their life, there is always time for a person. If their heart is beating, there is always hope. And there is the grace of God who can make a power to change in someone. When I judge someone and make sort of an assessment of that's just who they are, then I don't relate with them with the patience that someone would who has a big view of the grace of God. I don't relate with them with the hope. If somebody puts you in a box and just unfairly judges you, this is who you are. How does that make you feel? Have you had that happen? Does that make you inclined to say, yes, I want to serve the Lord. Thank you. 
You say, that guy, I don't want anything to do with that person. They just, they just put me, they just think I'm that way. That's not my whole life. That's, that, that I can change. The Lord can change me. So, so he's saying, don't prematurely make some kind of assessment about someone. The Lord will do that. There's always a possibility of repentance. We don't write people off because their story is not over. We don't have the same data that Jesus does. Secondly, we don't judge people because we don't know their heart. Look at what else he says. So verse five, the first part, do not pronounce judgment for the time before the Lord comes. Who will, what will Jesus do? Bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. This is so important. Jesus knows our hearts. Paul says, I don't even know my own heart. He knows our motivations. He knows what we're thinking, what we're feeling, why we act. And the truth is that I can do the same thing. I can act like I can do the same thing about people. Rather than just observing their actions, there is a place to observe behavior, to then verify behavior, if we're not 100% sure, to then verify behavior by asking, uh, inquiring of the person's behavior that you have a concern about. So there's a place to observe actions, but it's very different to observe actions and then to no mo- act like we know motive. Because he says only Jesus will disclose the secrets of the heart, the purposes rather of the heart. So we often say things like this or think things like that. She only did that because she wanted Really? So you know what she wanted. Wow, what's it like to be omniscient? That's amazing. You knew exactly what she was wanting. Oh, he does that. You know what he thinks? I know what he thinks. Now, if he told you what he thinks, you know. But if I just observe an action and then begin to interpret what his thoughts are, oh, you know what? He, he's only out for himself. That's all he's ever out for. Well, first of all, it's a pretty grandiose statement, especially if it was made about a Christian. He's only out for himself. So I know that about him, really. I know that his motive day and night, I can define what he was trying to do in every situation. When we judge the purposes of someone's heart, then we are encroaching upon the throne. We are seeking to sort of say, hey, Jesus, scoot over. There's room for another one up here. I'd like to evaluate what they were thinking, what they were feeling, why they did that, why they did it in the past, what they're going to do tomorrow. I know. And not only do I know and assess it, but I just might go share it with another coworker or someone else in the community group. Because not only am I omniscient, I also like to share the wealth of my knowledge. And you know what? She, she just thinks she's just so-and-so. He's just doing that. Well, you know, they're always, well, that's because, well, what I heard was, and so then that sort of thing starts sharing and it tears down the people of God. And it's what's going on in Corinth. People, I don't have a verse that says this, but you wouldn't have to read far into Corinthians to sort of use a little imagination and say, it's probably people are talking to one another about Paul. And this is why I think what he does, what he does. And therefore he's lowered in their estimation. They like somebody else. So we're all tempted to do that. It also, it not only does damage in the church, but we represent the Lord poorly when we do that with people outside of the church that don't know. So in the office or on your job, whatever the context is, or with your neighbor, or I mean, I mentioned them earlier, somebody else who's on the soccer team or someone else is in the PTA or whatever it is, when we just go and we start judging people's motives, 
oh yeah, well, they were just the, yeah, I, well, I know, you know, people like that, they always want, feel, think, they're just out for, when I start evaluating their motives with others, then what I'm confirming is the world's opinion of Christians. We just judge everybody. We just judge everybody. I'm just validating the stereotype, which is false in some places and truth be told, very accurate in other places. Start judging them. No hope for them. Those bad people, those are glad I'm not like them. When it starts sounding like I'm glad I'm not like them or I would never, we're just judgmentalism. Paul doesn't say that. He said, I can't believe you guys are doing that. I would never. No, Paul says, I didn't even know my own heart. I'm leaving that up to Jesus to judge. Jesus says, don't judge because you're worried about a speck. You got a tree trunk in your eyeball. Pay attention to the tree. Pay attention to the tree is what Jesus says. The text calls us to respond. So how do we respond to this text? Well, in the first place, I'd start with the beginning and say, let's ask, what, where are we living in our identity? Are we living as a servant of Christ? Do I view my Christian life as a set of doctrines to believe? It is that. You can't be a Christian without believing Jesus died for your sins in your place. So it is a set of doctrines. But, but is it just a set of beliefs for me or is it an approach? Is it a view of my life? Is it how I view myself and then in, from there, how I live? So Paul says, I live to serve Jesus. So a really helpful exercise for you and for me is to look at our servant. We serve the Lord by serving people in a, in a big way. I mean, we, you can't just sort of generically serve the Lord. I mean, you can with your thought life, and, but most of it has to do with how we relate to other people. Love the Lord your God with all our heart, soul, mind, your heart, soul, mind, and street. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we love our neighbor, love God. So think about who are the neighbors in your life. Draw some circles. Say one would be your home. Are you representing, I live at the disposal of Jesus in my home. I live at his command, serving for his pleasure, honoring him in my home. So think about your family, or if you're single, think about your roommates, whoever you live with. If you live by yourself, well, you can apply some of these other ones. But how do you, how are you relating? Would they think of you as someone whose lifestyle represents that person, he or she, that when I judge them at home, if I were to evaluate their behavior, I don't know their heart. If I were to behave their behavior, I'd say, boy, it looks to me, I don't know their heart, but it looks to me like they're serving Jesus because of the way they prioritize others in their speech, in their actions, in their, the way they take, help take care of the household, the way they pitch in, the way they love others, the way they listen, the way they care. Um, so those kinds of things. So Lord, how can I serve in my home? What does it look like to be a servant of Christ in my home? I don't have all the answers, but that's a question for you to ask. What does it look like for me to serve the Lord in my workplace? So if you're a stay at home mom, for instance, those could be the same, you know, caring for your kids, that's going to be the same thing, your family and your job. If you work outside of the home, uh, how do you interact with others? So how do you, what does it mean to me to be at the Lord's disposal, willing to do any menial task that would please him? How does that, how am I doing that with my coworkers? Would a coworker, if they found out I was a Christian and they found out the goal of my life is to be a servant of Jesus, would they say, well, that's pretty obvious. Or would they say, what? Would they be cracking up? You got to be kidding me. What would it be? Lord, help us in that. And then another sphere would be church. We could go on to more. We could talk about hobbies. We could talk about your, your neighborhood. We could talk about a lot of things, but another would be church. So 
is my involvement in the church. If you're new here, obviously you're, you're not here to serve. I mean, in any tangible way, you're here to check it out and see if this is a church for you. But if this is your regular church, you're a regular attender, you're a member, you say, this is my home, then is your posture when you gather on Sundays or in the community group or anything, is it, how can I serve? How can I take the interest of Jesus? How can I own those for my own? And how can I express that to others around me? So servant of Christ, called to be faithful. So where do we start? Just being faithful in those areas and take one area. Lord, how, where would you, where are you calling me to grow as a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ, willing to do anything for your glory? Where in my relationships am I starting? Maybe it's just one thing. Start somewhere. What about the judgmentalism? What if you feel judged? What if you're in a situation right now where you're being judged? How do you respond? I'll tell you how I respond. My temptation is to be defensive and to want to be able to give an explanation and to give a full reasons to change your mind. You think this about me? Let me tell you why that's not true. Here's all my reasons. Here's why you don't understand me. Here's where you miss. It's to be defensive. That's my temptation when I feel judged. Here's Paul's temptation, not his temptation. Here's what Paul does when he's being judged. Think of me as a slave of Christ. Whoa. He doesn't elevate himself. He's trying to create, he, he's trying to give a different picture to them. They want elevated leaders. He's saying, I, here's how I want you to think of me as someone that seeks to live for the Lord's glory. That's where he responds when he's being judged. So it's not to respond with bitter judgment in return, but rather turn to Christ and in some ways receive judgment, try to understand it. If someone's being critical, try to understand that because the Lord maybe has something for you in that. Most every criticism I received, have received, do receive, even if it's, even if I somehow think, man, that seems like a misdirected or an unfair criticism. There's almost always truth in it at some level, some kind of truth that I can benefit from and grow grow from if I want to be a more faithful servant of Christ. If my goal is not to be a faithful servant of Christ, then I'll just dismiss it. I'll criticize in return. I'll judge their motives. Well, they just said that about me. They think that about me because they think and they believe and they want and they, and then I'm just a mess. I'm doing the exact opposite of what Jesus and Paul teach us. So where are you feeling judgment? How can you cast that over on the Lord? How can you say, Lord, I want to grow from it. I want to learn, but I'm going to totally entrust this to you. You're going to have to sort everything out. I want to be, I want to be faithful to you. And you were persecuted. And you said that a student will receive the same thing as the teacher. So I may get some legitimate persecution if I'm living for the Lord, or I may just get ugliness my way. And how do I respond um, and then the other thing would be, who are you tempted to judge? So first of all, I must just walk it through the passage. What does it mean to be a servant of Christ in my various areas of life? Uh, what does it mean to be faithful in those areas? What do I do if I'm feeling judged? And what do I do with the temptation to judge others? Who am I judging? We're going to talk about this next week. The next section talks about it. So I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail about judgment next week. But, but who am I tempted to judge? And do I step back and say, I don't have all the data. Jesus will come at the end and he said, don't prematurely judge. And you don't know the purposes of people's hearts. So where am I tempted to make an evaluation of their heart, to give no room for them to grow, to believe they could change? I'm just evaluating, stamping them with a label and saying, that's who they are. And I don't expect anything else. Where is, where am I doing that? There's no grace in that whatsoever. No hope, no Jesus, but I I can do that. So step back and say, I don't have all the data. I don't know their heart. This is really helpful sometimes is to ask, Hey, 
it's, I saw this happen or I observed this or whatever, but, you know, can explain that to me? Tell me what was going on. I mean, that's helpful in the family. It's helpful in the workplace. It's helpful at the church to not just jump to, to a final decision. <clears throat> we ask some questions. Paul, Paul closes this section in an amazing way. After everything I've said, listen to this gospel hope at the end. He closes this section with tremendous hope. The, the Corinthians are, are certainly something of a mess. But this is how he closes it. He says, verse 5, uh, you know, don't pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes. He'll bring light to the things that are now hidden in darkness. He'll disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive, what, tremendous critique from the Lord? The Lord will chew you out. No. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The, the NIV actually translated, at that time, each will receive their praise from God. It's astounding. Paul says he anticipates Christ will return. He will reveal the secret of his heart. And his people, by grace, will be praised by their God. Not praised like worshipped, but praised like commended, encouraged. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's Paul's hope. So he doesn't say, you judgy people, you're a mess. There's no hope for you. Okay, he's doing everything right there. That'd be doing everything he was against. But instead he says, look, we don't know. Let's trust the Lord. There's a place to believe the best. Let's don't evaluate people as if uh, there's no future change. Let's don't act like we know all the motives of their heart. Let's trust the Lord. Let's deal with our log instead of messing with everybody's speck all the time. And then as we do that, and as we grow in that, as we receive the Lord's forgiveness, when we sin and power to change, we can anticipate standing before God on that day and hearing well done, being praised by God. This is one of the most astounding verses in the Bible when you think about it. There's coming a day where our anticipation should be each one will receive his commendation from God. God is going to recognize by his grace his work in you and your response to him. He's going to recognize that. He's going to commend, and that is all that matters. D.A. Carson says of that verse, there is only one person who's well done on the last day means anything. That's all that matters. The judging Corinthians aren't going to be there giving their opinion. Paul's not going to, the Lord rather, is not going to bring in your critical boss for some counsel on judging and evaluating you. Your parents who you never pleased and could never live up to their expectations, they will not be on the throne judging you on that day. You, your unjust neighbor who treated you unfairly will not be judging you on that day. A bigoted acquaintance who opposed you for your faith, the racist who judged you as less than because of the color of your skin or your, your, your race will not be on the throne evaluating you on that day. Other Christians, Jesus won't say, well, you know, okay, this is good, but I'd like to hear from some legalists. What do you guys think about him? Well, he won't be saying, I want some liberal Christian what do you think about her? It will be Jesus alone. And the expectation from the text is that by God's grace, you will hear well done, that the Lord will praise you for your growth in him as he changed you from the inside, as he taught you and molded you by his word through his spirit. So it's super hopeful. We come to the Lord and we ask forgiveness where we failed. We ask for his power to change. And then we live for this king and we live for that day. 
We live for that day. Let him be the judge. Let's let some things go. Let's let worrying about everybody else's stuff for a moment. Let's let that go and let's live for this day when God has not called me to be the, the judge of the universe. He is doing perfectly in that role. So how can I trust him waiting for that day? Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.